The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. This week we are on the topic of what the Bible says about confrontation. The Bible says about confrontation. So let's go ahead and look at that. came up with six points that I want to highlight from Scripture. There's, there's many more than that. Actually, there's too much to say in one sermon about confrontation and all that God would have us know. So I do want to narrow our study down and be very focused. So before I actually get into the content of what we're going to look at, here's some presuppositions before we start that you need to understand regarding my focus. This morning is very specific, somewhat narrow. The presuppositions I have before I get to this, number one presupposition is the Bible is sufficient. It's called the sufficiency of Scripture. And the Bible is sufficient to give us guidelines on how to deal with confrontation. The Bible is sufficient to address every area of living that we have. Many people don't believe that, but that's the clear teaching of Scripture, and that was the attitude of Jesus. So this topic uh, is addressed clearly, comprehensively from Scripture. Another presupposition is, as I'm talking about confrontation this morning, that's a huge umbrella term, includes a lot of different contexts, but specifically I'm talking about confrontation on an individual level, one-on-one, not group or corporate confrontation, but individual. Another presupposition to narrow our focus is I'm talking about confrontation between believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not talking about confronting unbelievers in the world. That's a different topic with a different point of emphasis. So it's between believers, whether it's in the church primarily, so I am speaking as a pastor, but it it also starts really in your home. And if you're married, it starts with your spouse. That's where it starts. If you have children, it starts with your children. If you're a sibling, it starts with you and your siblings. Um, so that's our focus. It is between believers, the kind of confrontation I want to talk about. And another presupposition we need to understand, why are you talking about confrontation? That sounds like trouble. Well, it is. And the presupposition is there's trouble in the church. There's trouble in every church. Why is there trouble in every church? Because every church is filled with sinners. Every person that goes to a church is a sinner, struggles with sin in certain areas. And when you have sinners gathering together, when you have two or more sinners gathered together, you have sin and you have problems. Hence the need for confrontation. So uh, there are problems and disunity that need to be addressed in every church. It's a reality. In light of that, just by way of example, if you've got your Bible handy, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 10. As you're flipping there, I remember my freshman year in college when I got saved, and it was the second semester, and I had a roommate, and he was a Christian too. And we had a third roommate. He was not a Christian, and he knew that I had just become a Christian, and he was somewhat antagonistic to the gospel. And the three of us lived together in a small dorm room. And every once in a while, me and my buddy, who was a Christian roommate, we'd We'd have a disagreement or maybe we'd bicker about his laundry that he never cleaned and it stunk up our room. You know, those real practical things or whatever it was. And I just remember one time where we were kind of bickering back and forth and the third roommate is there watching this. He's not a Christian. And he just interjects and says, yeah, see, that's why I don't want to become a Christian. You guys are hypocrites. You can't even get along. And so I talked to him further about that. I I didn't want to legitimize what he said. Actually, what I told him was, you know what? The fact that I am a Christian doesn't mean I'm perfect. I am a sinner. And you cannot use the fact that me and my buddy have problems and disagree 
and justify rejecting Jesus Christ because of our squabble or our sinful behavior. The only person you need to think about of whether you're going to accept Christianity or not is Jesus Christ, and He is perfect, and He never sins. And the point being that unbelievers sometimes want to use disunity going on in the church as justification as to why they're not going to believe in Christ, the Bible, or God. That's illegitimate. That is a false excuse. Um, I say that because in 1 Corinthians, at the church at Corinth, this was a church that the Apostle Paul planted. He started this church. He spent 18 months getting this church going. He trained up its leaders. He discipled the people there. Uh, he was the greatest pastor there ever was. He was an apostle. He spoke divine revelation from God. And you would think that, wow, the greatest pastor in the world, he didn't have any problems in a church that he planted. Oh, yes, he did. Very early on, too. So here's one of the problems they had at Paul's church plant. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this in verse 10. First, he gives a greeting and commends them for their faith, and he says that he loves them. And then he goes right into this rebuke. He confronts the whole body. Verse 10, now I exhort you, that's a confrontation, brethren, fellow believers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. You guys need to get along. Can't we all just get along? The Apostle Paul was the first one that said that. And there, and there be no divisions or schisms among you. But please, be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Have some harmony. Verse 11, For I have been informed concerning you and this church and the Christians that go to this church, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. There is conflict in this church. It was a real church. These are real Christians. Yet there was conflict that needed to be addressed. So conflict is real, even in the lives of Christians and real believers. So we need to address it and deal with it. And it's not just carnal immature, ignorant Christians that have problems in this area. Even sometimes mature believers can struggle in this area or at least be challenged with it every once in a while. The next passage I want to look at by way of introduction, Acts 15. Go there. Acts 15, starting at verse 36. So here you have two of the greatest missionaries that ever lived, the Apostle Paul and his partner and mentor Barnabas. And they just completed their first missionary journey out preaching and planting churches, and then they came back to Jerusalem and their headquarters to be refreshed and be equipped to go out again, and they just had the Jerusalem Council, and they're wrapping that up, and they're about ready to go on missionary journey number two, and on the first missionary journey, they had a young Christian man, his name was John Mark, that went with them, and apparently John Mark created some problems on the missionary team, and he became a point of contention between Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas loved John Mark. Uh, knew he blew it on the first missionary journey, but Barnabas wants to give John Mark a second opportunity to go on the next missionary journey, and maybe he won't blow it this time, putting the entire missionary team literally at risk. The Apostle Paul is like, no way. John Mark, he is not going with us. After what he did the first time, no. I refuse. And so look what happened. This just blew up. Uh, verse 36 of Acts 15, it says, And after some days Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John Mark with them, who went the first time and blew it. So he, uh, so he wanted to take John Mark along with them also. Verse 38 is key. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take John Mark along who had deserted them in Pamphylia. He just bailed in the middle of the trip and had not gone with them to the work. So it could be that Paul just thought he was a coward. No perseverance. 
putting the entire team at risk. And look at the conflict here in verse 39. And there arose such a bitter disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. A bitter, ugly disagreement between two very mature model Christians. It was so bad that they separated. They divided. They couldn't find harmony and peace. And their missionary team just imploded and severed right in two. They couldn't reconcile, at least at that point in history. They had such a bitter disagreement or a sharp disagreement that Paul and Barnabas separated from one another and Barnabas took John Mark with him and he went his direction to Cyprus and then Paul said, fine, I'm taking Silas, I'm going that way. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us who was right and who was wrong, but the point of the matter is there was a bitter disagreement. That is a reality even among mature, godly Christians. It's an issue. It is a reality. We must contend with it. Keeping with that same point, look at Acts chapter 37. Even mature Christians sometimes, when they have to confront an issue, they don't confront the right way. Sometimes. And I can't think of a more mature Christian than the Apostle Paul. So in Acts chapter 23, here's just an example of where Paul blew it once. He was not perfect. He was, he was a sinner. He walked with feet of clay. He had some vulnerabilities as a fallen human and an indwelling sin. He was a passionate man. We know that. He was a passionate preacher, fearless, bold. And with that passion, although it's got its strengths, every strength has a flip side. And one of the weaknesses the Apostle Paul had was his passion and keeping it restrained and reined in with self-control. And here's an example of where Paul blew it as an apostle at the peak, really, of his ministry. Or towards the end, actually, he was out preaching. He got arrested in Jerusalem. They threw him in jail. And now he's going before the court, the Supreme Court of the Jewish Council, the Sanhedrin. And so uh, they take him into the courtroom and he's standing before the judge, which is the high priest, according to the Old Testament, an evil, wicked man, nevertheless, filling an office that God had created, the high priest. He is the main judge with the jury. And so there's Paul in the courtroom. Look at chapter 23, verse, 30, uh, verse 1. And Paul in the courtroom, looking intently at the counselor of the Sanhedrin and all these judges, begins to give his testimony and he says, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. As I was preaching the gospel is what he meant. Verse 2, And the high priest Ananias, who was an unbeliever and a wicked man, but who was the judge, the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside Paul, probably soldiers, to strike him on the mouth. Here's Paul in the middle of giving his testimony and the, the soldiers right next to him, boom, they punch him right in the mouth in the middle of the courtroom. Paul did not respond the right way. He, he responded with retaliation and rage. Verse 3, it says, Then Paul said to him, the high priest, the judge in the courtroom, God's going to smite you, you whitewashed wall. Whoa. In other words, I hope God strikes you dead on the spot. That's what he said. And do you sit to try to try me according to the law and in violation of the law under me to, uh, to command that I be struck? But the bystanders around that were close to Paul, uh, they were just shocked that Paul would talk to the high priest like that. And they said, do you revile God's high priest? Paul didn't realize this was the high priest. Yikes. Verse 5, and Paul said, oh, I was not aware. Brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written in Scripture, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So immediately Paul was repentant. But the point is, he confronted the high priest, he did it the wrong way. So this isn't just for immature Christians, this is for everybody. So, 
uh, with that, just two more passages I want you to, to look at, because these are foundational and key to everything. This is the starting point of Christian biblical confrontation and resolution in interpersonal conflict. So I'm going to go to Matthew 5 and then Matthew 18. You're going to have conflict with people. You're going to have conflict with your best friend. If you're married, you're going to have conflict with your spouse. If you have children, you're going to have conflict with them. If you're siblings, you're going to have conflict with your your own brothers and sisters. If you're in a church, you're going to have conflict with people in the church. It is inevitable. And so the Bible is clear. Jesus is clear on how we deal with confrontation and conflict. And these are rock bed foundational. Matthew 5 and then Matthew 18. Starting in verse 21 of Matthew 5, Jesus is talking about having to do confrontation. Verse 21, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told. It's not in Scripture. But just some people said this and started a tradition. You shall not commit murder. They misquoted and misused Scripture. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, in contrast, Jesus said, everyone who is angry with his brother or his sister shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, that's an insult, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, to someone shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Wow, that's scary. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, in other words, if you're doing religious business, you go to church, whatever, and you're praying, trying to be religious, trying to worship God, if therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar, and therefore you remember that your brother has something against you, so if you know that a fellow brother or sister has something against you, you are obligated to do something about it. And that something is in verse 24. Jesus says, leave your offering. Stop your religious business. Quit your praying. Quit talking to God and go deal with this issue with the person who has something against you. Verse 24, leave your offering there before the altar. Go your way first. Be reconciled to your brother or your sister in Christ. And then come and present your offering. Here's the key, verse 25. Make friends quickly. Get reconciled quickly. Preserve peace immediately. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because Hebrews 12 is very clear. If you let the sun go down in your anger and you are harboring something in your heart towards a fellow believer for a prolonged period of time, even a short period of time, you will cultivate a root of bitterness in your heart towards that believer. And Hebrews 12 says that root of bitterness will grow and it will just consume everybody around. So, so Jesus says you need to deal with it and deal with it quickly. So that is foundational. But one of the keys to this passage, notice... Uh, who is commanded to go here. It's the person who knows, oh, somebody has something against me. They have something against me. So Jesus doesn't say, sit there and wait until they come and talk to you. He doesn't say that. He said just the opposite. You know that they have something against you. You are obligated to go to them. So Matthew 5, here's the person. They know that somebody has something against them. They are obligated to go to that person who is harboring the bitterness towards them. Perfectly complementing this command is Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. This is called the church discipline passage historically. It's a complementary passage to Matthew chapter 5. It's got four steps to the church discipline process. Today we are only focusing on the first step of church discipline. That's between individuals, one-on-one. And that step one is in verse 15. of Chapter 18, it says, If your brother sins... If you know a brother or sister who has sinned, you're an eyewitness, you saw it happen, you were involved when it happened. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. Or the NIV says, go and show him his fault. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Notice the contrast of this passage in command by Jesus with Matthew 5. 
Remember in Matthew 5, Jesus said, if you know somebody has something against you, go to them. Here he says just the opposite. If you have something against somebody else, go to them. So here's the picture. You know somebody has something against you, you go to them, and then the other person, they know uh, somebody has sinned against them, and they are commanded to go, so where do they meet? In the middle. It's a beautiful picture. They both have willing hearts to come and be reconciled. The offender and the one offended, that is God's model, if you're a believer. That's the imagery. They're both supposed to move to the middle. What is typical of human beings? Instead of going and moving to the middle for reconciliation, what do we do typically? Hmm, I'm not going anywhere. We turn our backs literally the other direction. That's why we need to address this. So let's go ahead and look at these six principles uh, about confrontation and what the Bible has to say about it. Point number one, very simple, and that is just the meaning of confrontation. What is the meaning of confrontation from a biblical point of view? Simply said, it is speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. This is an English translation from Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love. That's confrontation, biblical confrontation. Another way to say it is addressing interpersonal problems head on. Head on. Personally, privately, prayerfully, face-to-face, verbally, with words. That's biblical confrontation. Every one of those words, very specific, commanded in Scripture. Speaking the truth in love. Just go into your fellow believer. If you've got a problem, you've got a question, they've got a sin, you need to go to them. But that's the definition. Uh, some synonyms that are used in Scripture for confrontation are exhort, reprove, rebuke, admonish, correct, and counsel, and even speak to. The common denominator of all these, this is verbal face-to-face communication. No, I'm going to shoot an email that's 50 pages long. Boom! Take that! No. Every word used in Scripture is verbal, spoken face-to-face. If if it is within your power to go and meet that person and talk to them face-to-face, you are obligated by Scripture. Emails, notes, anonymous notes, cowardly. Anonymous notes are absolutely worthless Totally unjustified. You're not interested in the the betterment of the other person if you're writing an anonymous note of confrontation. Not warranted in Scripture anywhere. So this is verbal communication with a fellow believer. Basic to its very definition. Uh, Just some three things about the meaning and the definition that I took out of Ephesians 14. And I already talked about the first one. The method is speaking. We must talk. We must verbalize. We must go to that person and talk face-to-face, verbally, the spoken word. That takes courage. We have fear many times, and that's why we don't do it. As a matter of fact, there are, here are the tough... I've been doing counseling as a pastor for at least 20 years, and most I'd say 90% of my counseling revolves around people not getting along with somebody else. Here's a typical counseling scenario when I meet with somebody. So-and-so did this, and they said this, and they hurt my feelings, and blah, blah, blah. All right? And my first question is always, have you talked to this person? Most of the time they say, no, I have not. Well, then you know what you need to do? You need to go to that person privately, prayerfully, personally, one-on-one, and say everything to them that you just told me. That's what you need to do. And you need to speak to them. Speak to them. I know it takes courage, but it needs to be spoken. That is our method. We need to talk. It's, just, it's really that simple. So many problems would be just be put to rest if we would just honestly talk to one another face-to-face and have the courage to do that. Some of you were not raised in a home where you were taught 
to speak honestly face to face with others, especially when there are problems. Some of you were raised maybe with the model of, uh, of avoiding problems, ignoring problems, pretending like they don't exist or just zero communication. I know what that's like. But we have to overcome that with Scripture and the power of God because that's what God expects. So the method of speaking, the margins, these are the boundaries of our confrontation. The boundaries of our confrontation or the margins is truth. In other words, when we go to confront someone, we are guided by truth. We are guided by biblical principles. That is truth. We are guided by the model of truth incarnate, which is Jesus Christ and how He confronted people. Those are the margins. Those are the boundaries. Don't go outside the margins and boundaries of confrontation. What is going outside the boundaries? Well, here's some examples. When you go to confront somebody for the purpose of belittling them, shaming them, embarrassing them, retaliation, revenge, insulting them, or exonerating yourself, those, those aren't biblical models. That's going outside the margins of biblical truth. Which leads us to the motive. We've got to have the right motive when we go to confront it. It's just simply love. Speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 literally does not say speaking the truth in love. It's a participle of the word truth. And literally what it says is uh, being loving. Or I mean, uh, sorry, truth. Not uh, speaking the truth in love. It's being truthful is the literal translation because it's a participle of the word truth. Being truthful. It's not just speaking the truth. It's being truthful. That includes our words and our deeds. That is uh, a person who is transparent and has integrity in all areas of their life. Verbally and also with your actions and your attitudes. Being truthful. That's the better translation of Ephesians 4.15. And you do it in love with the right motives. And Jesus modeled for us what the right motives are. Are, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what those motives are. So that is the meaning or the basic definition of the confrontation that I'm talking about. So let's go on to the mandate of confrontation. The mandate or the command. Or why do we have to do this? What is the mandate? Uh, from Jesus, which we already read, it's take action. That is the mandate. If you've got a problem against somebody else, you've got a problem against somebody else, or you know they have a problem against you, you must take action. You must take it Because that was the same phrase was used in Matthew 5. It was also used in Matthew 18 when there's a problem that you have with somebody else. And the command is go. That's what Jesus said. Oh, you got a problem with somebody? It doesn't matter how big or how little. If you're still stewing on it and you haven't thrown a blanket of love over it to swallow it up so it doesn't exist anymore, then you need to go. That's what Jesus said. Matthew 5, go. Matthew 18, go. Take action. And so when you come to me for counseling, I've got a problem with this person and here's what they said and here's what they did. The first thing I will say is, did you go? That's step number one. That's what Jesus said. That's what the word hupage means. That's the verb used each time. Go, go, go. That is the mandate. Take action. This is a basic biblical command to take action, to go, to manage your own personal relationships. Did you know we are responsible for managing our own personal relationships as Christians before God? It's not a professional's responsibility to manage all of your personal relationships. It's not the pastor's responsibility to manage all your personal relationships. But God has equipped pastors to intervene and mediate when necessary. One thing that I always think about is, as I'm doing all this counseling with people, I don't mind counseling, I actually enjoy it, and I think God's given me a gift for it, at least to participate in it, and I welcome it, I don't shy away from it, but as I do a lot of counseling and working with people and all their problems, I don't know if it ever dawns on anybody that, you know what, I've got just as many problems in my own personal life. Whether it's my relatives, or my cousins, or my family, or my home or people in the church, I also have this problem. So when I'm telling you, you need to go, I need to say, th- say the same thing to me. McManus, have you gone? 
If I have something against a brother or sister, I need to go. If, they have, if I know somebody has something against me, I have got to go. Man, it was just recently here at this church. Um, somebody at this church came up and started talking to me, and before the conversation was over, I realized it was a, a mild confrontation of me. And they were inquiring, but the good, it was graciously done. It was, it was totally non-threatening. They had the right attitude, motive, everything. It was beautiful. And we were able to talk. Boom, resolved it on the spot. That was very encouraging. So this is a mandate. We need to take action. Go, go, go. This is absolutely necessary to maintain healthy relationships. That's, Proverbs is filled with commands to go and confront and how to do it. Earlier I said, we're not talking about confronting unbelievers. As a matter of fact, Proverbs says many times don't do that. If you go and confront or reprove a scoffer, that is stupid. Don't do that. You will be insulted. You will be dishonored. Do not confront a mocker or a scoffer. Proverbs 9, that's why we are talking about believers. Maintaining healthy relationships. This, this applies to kids. You're nine years old. you got a problem with a kid on the playground. Your first resort isn't to go tattle to the teacher. you got a problem with the sibling at home. Your first option is not to go tattle to mommy and daddy. Your first resort in a Christian home is to try to deal with it yourself and resolve it with that 14-year-old sister somehow. First, address it. Address it honestly. If they did something wrong, speak honestly, truthfully. Tell them how it hurt your feelings or what you thought was wrong. Try to work it out. Then if it doesn't work out, then you go tattle to mommy and daddy. So this applies to everybody. It's, it's fantastic, these biblical principles. Uh, let's go on. So we've got the meaning, speaking the truth and love. The mandate is to take action. Go, go, go. And then number three is the mission. What is the goal of confrontation from a biblical point of view? Many goals. It is compound, but ultimately it is to get to the truth in harmony for God's glory. God's glory. God is glorified. God is pleased. God is put on display when believers get along in harmony and unity. When believers are not getting along, that takes away from God's glory. That messes up the testimony of the body of Christ in the world as unbelievers are looking on. So God is glorified when we get along. Psalm, I want to read this because it's such a beautiful psalm. Psalm 133, verse 1. Uh, we had to study this in the Hebrew class I took in seminary like 24 years ago. I'll never forget it. It was so powerful. Psalm 131, verse 1 says, Oh Lord, uh, oops, sorry, I'm on the wrong verse. Chapter 33. Uh, behold. Behold! This is amazing. That's what he's saying. This is emphatic. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to, tw- to dwell together in unity. How beautiful. What a beautiful picture when there is harmony in the church, in the body of Christ, in God's religious establishment. That's what it, how beautiful, how good. That pleases God. God is glorified. Look at Joshua chapter 7 in the Old Testament. Amazing story. Uh, God was bringing the the Israelites into the Promised Land. They're going across the Jordan River. They're entering the two nearest cities, Ai and then Jericho eventually. And God made a decree and said, when you go into this city and destroy it, into Ai, you're not allowed to take anything. You are not allowed to plunder the city. And there's a guy there who was a Jew who went into the, the city and he plundered everything. He plundered gold. He plundered a nice, beautiful robe and jacket and a couple of other things. And he took them when he thought nobody was looking. And nobody was looking. And he took it and he went into his tent and he buried all that good stuff under his tent. The plunder, which God said not to do. God got angry. God knew about it. 
God told Joshua, there's somebody, there's a compromiser in your, uh, in your midst. And as a result, you're not going to be successful. I'm not going to defend you before uh, the Gentiles until you expose this person who's being dishonest. And so God used Joshua to call the entire congregation of Israel to a huge meeting. And the Spirit of God revealed that it was a man named Achan who was the plunderer and liar. Achan was mistaken. And he was lying about stuff. Achan was mistaken for Fakin. But anyway, it's really bad what happened to him because he ended up getting burned to death. So Achan was mistaken for Fakin and ended up bacon. But we won't go into details. <laughs> uh, but the verse I want to highlight there in Joshua chapter 7 about Achan uh, is how God gets glory from confrontation done the proper way. And so they finally exposed Achan and, and narrowed it down. And in verse 19, Joshua says this, Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Give glory to God. How's he going to do that? By admitting what he did. Repenting in front of everybody. Give glory to God, the God of Israel, and give praise to Him. And tell me how. Oh, tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. And he recounts exactly what he did. And there was still a consequence. Death for him and his family. That was the consequence. Wow! Was there forgiveness of sin? Possibly. There, maybe there was judicial forgiveness of sin, but there were temporal consequences nonetheless. He paid with his life. So God gets glory when we repent. Uh, but under the mission and the goal... Uh, one, of the, one of the goals of confronting someone is to seek clarity. That's actually the first goal. Is to seek clarity. To expose truth and bring all the truth to the surface. Because many times, you know what, you may be harboring something against somebody else, or you know somebody has something against you, and it's all due to maybe just miscommunication. That happens many times. Bad communication, a lack of communication, whatever it is. So... Goal number one is to seek clarity, get everything out on the table, exposure of all truth, and to see the big picture. Get clarity before you proceed. This is absolutely essential in squabbles and disputes and schisms. Listen to this amazing verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Talking about squabbles, the squabbling, arguing, divisive Corinthian Christians. Paul says this about their squabbling. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17. He says, But in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for worse. Man, when you guys get together, you just squabble and fight. I am not encouraged by that. That is bad. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions or schisms among you. Clicks. Division. Disunity. It's horrible. Spread like a cancer in the church. I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. But here's the key. Look at verse 19. is amazing. For there must be, or literally, it is necessary, from God's point of view, that there be factions or divisions among you. Why? For the purpose of, or in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. You know what a schism does between two people or two parties? It brings to the surface, like a boil, all the stuff to the surface of the skin. It brings the truth to the surface and exposes hidden motives. That is the one benefit of schisms and divisions. God will bring it to the surface. And it will expose weaknesses. It will expose compromise, sin that needs to be addressed 
and committed to God. So there is a benefit, and God uses all things for good, as we know from Scripture. So seeking clarity is first. The next goal is seeking the repentance of the one in the wrong. If they are sinful or had been in sin, or maybe both parties were uh, had it contributed some sin, they both need to repent. That is the goal. That's Luke 17, where Jesus said, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Forgive. If he sins seven times in one day, forgive him seven times that day. That was a command from Jesus. So you seek clarity, then you're trying to get repentance, and then after repentance, admitting that you were wrong, then comes reconciliation and restoration. That is the goal. Reconciliation means two enemies who are now at peace. That's reconciliation. Restoration means healing. Restoration. We'll see that in Galatians. God is seeking restoration in confrontation. Healing. It's like when I uh, went sledding about six years ago and we were sledding in the mountain and my kids were smaller and I was in the sled and they were in the front and I was in the back and I was driving and I had my hands out like this uh, in the snow and I was using to balance myself so we didn't fall over in the sled but also to use them as brakes and we're zooming down and I got up to about 42 miles an hour down that hill and we were cooking and all of a sudden smash uh, ran right into a rock under the snow and just shattered my pinky into seven different pieces. And uh, it was a problem. I ended up going to the doctor. They took x-rays. Uh, they did surgery to try to repair it. And the doctor did tell me that it, it's amazing. And I don't understand how it works. And I'm just a doctor. But you know when a, a bone is broken or fractured or cracked, and if you set it right back in place and you let it heal, that where it broke is stronger than it was the, before it got broken? That is amazing. And I was thinking, well, I know why that happens because that's the way God designed the human body and that's illustrative of human relationships. If there's a fracture in a relationship, you go head to head with a friend and there's a breach in your relationship. It is possible if you're a Christian not only to be reconciled, but also to restore that relationship so that it's stronger than it ever was before. Literally, that's Galatians 6.1. Restore one another. And the word used there in the Greek text for restore talks about literally it's used for mending nets and fixing a hole in the net so you can fish with it again so it's functional it's also uh, referred to setting bones back in place healed restored so reconciliation is peace with one another and restoration is to come back to full functioning capacity even better than it was before that is the ultimate goal in confrontation actually the ultimate goal all this if it does happen in the right way gives glory to god he is pleased that is the ultimate goal and the onus is on you, as we said earlier. It's a mandate. Go, go, go. In the words of Romans chapter 12, insofar as it depends upon you, seek peace with all men. Because there are excuses that even Christians use. In all the years of my counseling, there are many excuses as to why people don't go, go, go. Time and time again, I've had people, I, I show them from Scripture, here's why you need to go. Scripture, Jesus said so twice. You need to go to that person. And, and here... Out of the hundreds of excuses, here are the top four excuses that I've heard over the course of 20 years in counseling as to why Christians won't go to another Christian for the purpose of reconciliation. Listen to these excuses that are so typical. Uh, one of them is they, they will say, well, they don't deserve it. Wow. That's a wrong attitude. What else will they say? Well, they won't respond. It won't do any good. But it doesn't matter. You're not in control if they respond. You just got to do the right thing. That's why Jesus gave us four steps to the discipline process in Matthew 18. Because there is recourse of what you do if they don't respond every single time. They will be accountable to God if you do the right thing. So you can't use the excuse, well, they won't respond. It won't work. He won't listen. Well, Jesus said they might not listen. And then He said if they don't listen, here's the next thing you do. can't use it as an excuse. 
Another excuse commonly used is, well, I don't want to judge them. I just want to love them. Therefore, I'm not going to confront them. When actually the most loving thing you can do, if it is warranted, is to confront them. Confronting someone in a biblical way is the most loving thing you can do. Jesus did it all the time. So don't use that as an excuse. And then finally, the number 100 people survey top four answers on the board. Here's the number one excuse. I don't like confrontation. Doesn't that sound spiritual? Halo over their head. How holy, how spiritual. Isn't that nice and pleasant? I don't like confrontation. No, you're just being fearful. You're being a coward. You're making an excuse. So there's those kind of people that are fearful and cowardly. Then there are the other people that are probably even more scary. They like confrontation. They think it's a spiritual gift. Look out for those people. But anyway, let's go on to number four. The means of confrontation. How do we do this? How do we prepare for confronting someone? And what does it take? Well, what it takes is spiritual maturity. That's the main point. Before you go confront somebody, you need spiritual maturity. And how do you exhibit spiritual maturity? Three things I wanted to highlight there is step one. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Before you go and confront somebody, keep these two passages in mind. Galatians chapter 6 and then Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to put my finger in both of them. You can as well. Spiritual maturity. Sober-mindedness. You have reigned in your emotions. You have clarity of thought. You know what the truth is. You're not being driven by your emotions or circumstances. You are driven by the truth, the Spirit of God, prayer. Humble attitude, right attitude, right motive. This is spiritual maturity before you go and confront somebody. So here's what Paul says before you confront somebody, Galatians 6.1. Brethren, fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ... If someone is caught in any trespass, if somebody has sinned and you need to go confront them, here's what you need to do. You who are spiritual, you need to be spiritually mature before you engage in the confrontation process. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Heal such a one. Notice, one of the qualities of spiritual maturity and confrontation is in a spirit of gentleness. That talks about an attitude of gentleness, grace, humility, forgiveness, patience, generosity, but also an action of humility. The action, even your methodology, the way you talk, the tone of your voice, your action. That's where Paul blew it in Acts chapter 23, at least on that occasion, right? He just retaliated in anger. God smite you, you whited wall. That was not with gentleness. Paul acknowledged that. That was over the line. That was sinful. So we need to do it in the spirit of gentleness, just like Proverbs 15.1 says, great classic verse, right? A harsh word stirs up anger, right? But a gentle word, it brings calm, turns away wrath, right? So even our how we approach. Uh, so that's just a great passage. Do some self-evaluation. Jesus said the same thing, Matthew 7. Listen to this. Do not be judged lest you be judged. Here he's talking about don't judge their motives. You don't know people's motives. Here's another frequent thing that happens in counseling where one Christian accuses the other Christian of not being a Christian. Here's what they did, therefore they must not be saved. That is, you can't do that. Real Christians are vulnerable to all kinds of sin. Plus, you don't know their heart. That's what Jesus is talking about. Do not judge. He's talking about their heart or their motives. He says in the same chapter, you do need to judge their actions and their words. That's the only thing you can judge, is their behavior. Don't judge their motives. Don't go there. For in the way that you judge somebody's motives or heart, you will be judged by God. That's what he means. And by your standard of measure, which is strict, lacking in grace, no forgiveness, no mercy, 
you'll be held to the same standard. That's a dangerous, frightening thing. Same measure, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you? And here it is. Why do you look at the speck, the tiny little piece of sawdust that's bothering you about somebody else in their eye? Oh, I need to pick out that sawdust. Excuse me. Can I pick out that sawdust in your eye? It's really bothering me. What an irritant. That's what Jesus is saying. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? And you've got to point out his little problem, but you do not even notice the log or the two by four or the huge massive plank in your own eye. Jesus is saying you need to do some self-evaluation. Verse 4, Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log is stuck. You've got a tree stuck in your eye. You can't help anybody. And then he says this, man, talk about confrontation. Verse 5, Jesus says, you hypocrite. You two-faced hypocrite. This is Jesus, incarnate love, saying this. Because it's true. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of the brother's eye. All Jesus is talking about is you need spiritual maturity, self-evaluation, and a proper spirit of prayer, humility, led by the Spirit of God in confrontation. So that is the prerequisite. Spiritual maturity, self-evaluation, courage. We talked about that. The, fear, you know, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You need to fear God and God alone and do what He says and not be afraid of man. It's a huge reason why people don't confront. They are afraid. We have to overcome our fear. Love casts out perfect fear. And also, we, we hinted at this, uh, the means you need to have a forgiving heart. And you know what? You need to be resolute in your mind before you go and confront that fellow brother or sister that you are willing to forgive them. If they respond the right way, I'm going to forgive them 100%. That has to be settled in your mind before you even go. That was Luke 17.3. Jesus said, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins seven times a day, forgive him every time. You need to have a forgiving heart. We must. And we can't on our own. That only comes from the indwelling Spirit of God. Forgiveness, it is absolutely essential. You know the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, but just by way of reminder, talking about forgiveness and how basic and essential this is between believers. Jesus teaches to pray and Jesus models prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, and He goes through it and He says, Give us this day our daily bread, verse 12. And He says, And forgive us our debts. God, please, forgive us our sin that will condemn us to hell if it's unforgiven. That's how we're supposed to pray to God. God, forgive us our debts and we also, as we also forgive our debtors. A Christian needs to have a forgiving heart, all the time, a tender heart, a sensitive heart. And if you have a hardened heart towards someone, you need to ask God and pray, God, soften my hardened, unforgiving, recalcitrant heart. And He will. Because that's praying in the will of God. He will soften your heart so that you have a capacity that is supernatural to forgive. He goes on in verse 14 and 15. If you don't forgive, here's what's going to happen to you. For if you forgive men for their transgressions or sins, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, strong warning, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Sobering. Challenge. So that's the means. Spiritual maturity prepared through self-evaluation, courage, trusting in Christ, and having a forgiving heart before you even go. Number four, what is the mode or the context of confrontation? Well, it's case by case. Case by case. Every situation and scenario that needs a confrontation is not the same. It's case by case. Uh, two main differences that I put there. Uh, you could have personal offenses require private confrontation. So you could have personal offenses or public offenses, and they need to be dealt with in a different way. But personal offenses require private confrontation. That's why in Matthew 18:15 it says, if somebody has sinned against you, you go to them, and Jesus uses the word privately. Privately, if it was a personal offense between you and that person, you go privately, you talk about it, you try to resolve it, 
And Jesus is being very gracious here. Why privately? Because He's trying to protect the reputation and the character of all parties involved. So that if it does get resolved and forgiven, it's done. It is forgiven. It is history. As far as the East is from the West. Privacy. Absolutely essential. That's on one-on-one personal... That's why Debbie and I for 21 years... I don't think we violated this yet. We are not perfect. We don't have a perfect marriage by any means. We are sinners that live together at home, trying to forgive each other from day to day. But one thing that God has enabled us to do for 21 years is we have kept our conflicts private with one another. I can't ever remember my wife calling her mommy or somebody else. Do you know what my husband did to me? So she's been very gracious. She's got a problem with me. She's coming to me. And I've done the same thing. I don't talk about my private problems with my wife, whom I'm one with, with other people. It is my responsibility. So this is personal and private confrontation. But there are also times where there's public offenses that demand public confrontation right on the spot where you don't go through the Matthew 18 process of first private personal confrontation and then work through the steps. There are some sins that require immediate public confrontation. Paul read a great passage earlier out of Galatians chapter 2 where the Apostle Peter, Pope Peter, was compromising with a whole bunch of people, polluting the Gospel, saying that Gentiles need to become Jews first before they can get saved, polluting the Gospel. The Apostle Paul heard about it. He didn't just go pulse Peter aside and talk to him privately. Peter did this compromise in front of everybody throughout the whole church. That was a public offense undermining the Gospel. And Paul knew that warranted a public rebuke. And he said, I rebuked him to the face in the presence of all. And he needed to do that. That was legitimate. That was required for a couple of reasons. Number one, because the sin was public, but also because Peter was a leader in the church and God does hold leaders in the church to a higher standard. 1 Timothy 5 talks about this higher standard of where an elder, if an elder sins and compromises, they need to be held to a different standard and they need to be rebuked. They have special protections, but there are also higher standards of rebuke. Look at verse... uh, 19 of 1 Timothy chapter 5 talking about elders and leaders and pastors in the church with respect to sin and accusations. Uh, verse, 19, verse 19 says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder or a pastor except on the basis of two or three witnesses. There is the protection. Somebody goes whining about me to maybe the other elders. Pastor Cliff did this. If it is just one person that is saying that, according to this verse, uh, they are supposed to dismiss that. And I do the same for my fellow elders. If it's one person talking about another elder behind their back and it's just one person talking, I totally dismiss it because that's what verse 19 says to do. It needs to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses like the book of Deuteronomy says that's the way you validate legal truth. You can't just conjure up something in your imagination to undermine the reputation of a leader in the church. Uh, that's the protection. Here's the higher standard in verse 20. Those who continue in sin. So if there are elders or pastors who are in sin... They need to be rebuked in the presence of all. Wow. Pray for our elders and pastors that that never happens at GBF or it doesn't need to. But we're just as vulnerable as anybody else. But there's that public rebuke. Why? So that the rest in the congregation also may be fearful of sinning. The leaders become a model of all things. It's like when they used to have public hangings in the Old West. And they'd invite everybody to come, bring your popcorn, but it scare the people to death. Don't do what he did. That's part of it. It's a public rebuke. So 
that would be the mode case by case. And then finally, let's look at, oh yeah, just other examples of public rebuke uh, was Achan, who was publicly rebuked, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, the person who was committing sexual immorality in the church at Corinth, public rebuke. And then finally, number six, regarding confrontation, Jesus is the model. He is the model. Jesus maintained a perfect balance. See, that was the key. That's what's so hard for us to do, right? Because we're usually on one end of the spectrum. We are fearful and we don't want to do the right thing and go to that person so we don't confront. Or the other end of the spectrum were those people with the gift of confrontation and they confront too often, too much. They confront about things that don't warrant confrontation or they do it, most of all, with a wrong attitude and heart. But Jesus struck the perfect balance right in the middle. Confrontation when necessary, truth, love, and forgiveness and patience when necessary 100% of the time. So He is our model, and it's all throughout the four Gospels. His beautiful, perfect model. And you see, probably the best illustration of that balance is with the woman at the well who had been married five times. She was an adulterer, according to the Old Testament. She should have been stoned to death on the spot. And yet Jesus, He confronted her about her sin. He made her confess and admit her sin and her shame. And He didn't condemn her. Oh, you, according to the Mosaic Law, you need to die. He didn't do that. He was gracious. She admitted her sin and Jesus gave her the Gospel to save her soul. And that's probably what happened. She responded to the Gospel, went back and told everybody, this man knew about my life. He's probably the Messiah. I believe that the woman at the well is now the woman in heaven because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ forgave her as she repented from her sin, as Jesus beautifully modeled all of these steps for our example, for our good, for God's glory. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God to impress these things upon our heart and our mind and to try to implement these every day. It is so hard and that's why we need to lean upon Him and His truth. Father, we do thank You for this day and our time of corporate worship together. Thank You for the Bible, which is truth. Thank You for its sufficiency that it addresses every issue we have to contend with in life. God, help us to be obedient people when it comes to confrontation, that we'll do what you said. We'll go at the right time. We'll go with the right attitude. We'll have forgiving hearts. We'll be led by the Spirit, bound by your truth, seeking your glory and the good of the one in sin, that they might be restored. God, help us to do that. All for you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.